0: Today my guest is Amanda Natividad, a marketing expert, a great writer and an incredibly kind teacher. We dive into her humble beginnings where humor helped her establish a strong foundation that she turned into a marketing powerhouse. Amanda works at Spark Toro and has unique insights into the world of of social media audiences which we dive into deeply. If you want to know what zero-click content is, why fractional marketing matters, and how Amanda plans her own side projects, stick around. This episode is sponsored by Acquire.com. More on that later. Now here's Amanda. Amanda, welcome to the show. Back when the world was still somewhat normal, I found you through your writing on Twitter and your amazing writing on marketing, audience building, that kind of stuff. It was super accessible, on point, very relatable. So thank you for that. Now, I, I know that you started writing at a very, very early age in life and in a pretty nerdy way. Tell me, who exactly are Fufu and the Dust Bunnies?
1: So you really did you really did your research for this. <laughs> so Fufu and the Dust Bunnies is a fictional band that I made up in junior high that I used as a front to send memes and like funny audio files to my classmates. So the other way I talk about this is that I feel like I invented email newsletters as we know them today. <laughs> yes. Maybe I even invented memes.
0: Wow!
1: Because this was this was like I'm a little old here, but this was back in the AOL days, and um, it was when there wasn't there wasn't really a meme, right? Like, there were a couple of funny like comedy websites, so I basically just got content from e World, like links to Homestar Runner videos, uh, weird JPEGs, wave files of like. I don't even remember what it was, like Donald Duck, just like silly stuff. And I would round it up into a newsletter and I would call it things like, Oh, you know, we got we took a new band headshot. And it was like this creepy photo of a guy with like a funny face. And I'd be like, What do you think of my photo? I'm like, Oh, the new single just dropped. And then it would be a funny wave file. And I would send this to my classmates as like, like every week as like, Hey, the news the newsletter just came out. And <laughs> I was I was a really like shy and quiet kid uh, for most of my school life. So my classmates were like I didn't know you, you were so weird. <laughs> and I think it was just I just didn't have the medium in which I felt comfortable and I suppose back then email newsletters were my medium.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. Like the the way you use the kind of the the digital abstraction of the world of the internet, to be an introvert, be somebody who doesn't openly talk about all these things to still be nerdy. I love that. And it's conversational. I love this. I love that like a fake band. Everybody can kind of relate to music, right? That's really cool. There's always this relatable aspect. That's kind of what I find in your writing. And I think to this day, you have this. You have this, this skill of making things relatable. I love the fact that it started out with something as weird as this. When did you write the last episode of this? Would you Do you consider maybe sometimes reinventing this and bringing it back? You know
1: what? Maybe I I never thought about it. (laughs) I should. I mean, I think um, my newsletter, my current newsletter, The Menu, I've tried to have elements of curation, but I think to do it in a way that I feel would be most meaningful to people, like setting the right context, surfacing the ideas that I believe should be surfaced, I think would take me a long time. So I haven't really put more thought into how I would structure that, but I like the idea. Maybe I should bring back Fufu and
0: the Dust Bunnies. <laughs> well, I was I was wondering because you could probably with AI actually create Fufu and the Dust Bunnies at this point. Like they could literally make songs in the style that you would like about a topic about a theme that you have in a newsletter. Anyway, like you know, like for for something as as weird as a fake band to actually be part of your personal brand. I love the menu, like the fact that there's there's food tips, there's recipes in there, which I guess come from a, a rich history of having worked in in this field for you as well. That's so nice. It's so unique you it's so unique like nobody could write the menu with you right because you have your thoughts about marketing and audience building and all that and you have your curated links which is something that i want to talk to you about as well and you have the food thing which is the surprise right that's the the fun part um is that is that something that you uh would suggest to people who are starting out on their creator journey from the start to look for The fun part, look for the uniqueness that they have or contrasting it, I guess, with should you just do what you think people want from you?
1: I think this is a a really good question because I think it depends. Um, I think everybody would want for me to say, no, no, do what you want to do. But I think it depends because if your goal is maybe to monetize the content, right, build a media empire, that kind of thing, then you should Try to figure out what people want and then and then, you know figure out how you uniquely can deliver that value, Of course. but um, I do think it's about finding a balance between what what your market wants and what you actually want to create. Um, so that's one piece. And then I think when you think about the type of content you want to create, that's where there's a big opportunity to really find your unique voice, your unique perspective, Um, because, you know, like you kind of said earlier, right? Like no one can do it the way you can, right? Like no one can talk about a certain topic about like being a bootstrap founder, for instance. Nobody can talk about it the way that you do with your experience, your expertise, the way that you view the world. Um, so I think people should find the opportunity between that and what the, what the, what the market opportunity actually is.
0: Yeah, you can only really tell stories if you have actual anecdotes that are full of anecdata, that is your own lived experience. Right, and in, in, let's get back to Fufu and the Dust Buddies because I, I think the concept to me it, it lends itself to explain this. I feel because Fufu could just have started as a cover band, right? They took songs from other bands, put their own spin on it, but still it it was other people's content, other people's ideas, and I think that's the curation part that a lot of founders or a lot of creators start out with because it's very easy. We pull in the things that other people offer, and then over time. You connect the dots in ways that nobody else can, and that's when the cover band turns into an actual band that contributes to the richness of the musical sphere with new ideas and new songs. Right, that write their own songs quite literally. That's writing. So maybe let's let's put fufu aside. But I like I like the idea of of um, using something that that exists in the real world. As an example for a larger concept, and you do do this wonderfully in your content, and maybe that's that's what I would like to talk about. Because like over the last couple of years, I've followed you obviously on Twitter and and the other platforms that you're on, and you always find a way to distill your content or the ideas that you communicate into clear phrases. Um, that's that is something that I that I find really really interesting. And you recently were talking about content that is very. Um, that stays on platform. And you have a phrase for this, right? Can you explain that for me?
1: Yeah, so the phrasing that I call this is zero-click content. So zero-click content is standalone unique content, or standalone native to platform content for which the reader or the consumer doesn't need to click to get the full context, that they can understand it in of itself. But if they do click, then it's even better, right? So it's like, taking maybe a soundbite from a podcast and having this standalone soundbite that it makes sense in that 30 second clip, but it makes even more sense or it's put, you know, or or it's even more enjoyable in the greater context of the full episode. Um, Other versions of this would be, you know, rewriting like a summary of a blog post into a Twitter thread, right? Taking like one discrete idea from a blog post writing it into like a 100 word LinkedIn post or Twitter thread and giving people that like standalone idea that kind of teases them or gets or entices them to stay to stay on board right or to click or to click on the thing or subscribe to the newsletter or that sort of stuff
0: yeah, it seems that platforms now, particularly with Twitter over the last couple of months, they've been heavily disincentivizing clicking, getting people off platform, and they've been loading up, I guess, on multimedia content, on like super long pieces of content, tweets that are like 10,000 characters or less, right? It feels like this is also encouraged by the algorithm. So my question is, well, if the algorithm, which is a kind of a representation of the business model of Twitter, like keep people on Twitter all the time, wants me to write long content, is that good for my personal brand or is it good for Twitter?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's good for Twitter now, and you know, Twitter or X, right? <laughs> like, it's 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 very it's obviously very different today than it was like two years ago, right? And especially today, you know, at, at the time of this recording, they've definitely you know de incentivize um, putting in links, right? Because now now they strip out the the headline and any of the context that like there's no, there really is no reason now to include links on Twitter. No reason for the creators, right? Beyond just you feel like you're supposed to. Um, and then you have like LinkedIn, right? Where LinkedIn might not directly penalize you for putting a link, but they more so reward engagement, like comments and resharing and likes. So you're more incentivized to keep the conversation there. Um, I, I, I think, you know, what I What I think, it. I think the opportunity is you as a creator understanding these algorithms, like understanding how they work, at least on a, on an overview level. Like maybe you don't need to know all the nitty gritty, like exactly how much weight a like has, right? Maybe you don't have to know that. But I do think it's worth understanding these algorithms as a whole and then learning how you can exploit them, for lack of a better term, right? Like, How can you play into the incentives of the platforms in a way that aligns with your goals?
0: I like the alignment. Alignment is the phrase that comes to mind, right? Because if Twitter wants something and you can help them get it, then they will help you, hopefully, to get what you want, right? And I've I've talked to Dickie Bush recently, and he kind of told me his perspective on this. He said there's kind of content that makes people discover you, and then there's a kind of content that makes people stay with you. They're not the same, right? Like the discovery content is the stuff that Twitter really likes and the retention content, well, that's just what you need to do to cater to your existing audience. So you, if, if you can just follow those leads, you can do both.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I think a podcast is a really good example of it's not great for discoverability, yeah. right? Like if you, <laughs>
0: sure
1: right, it's not it's not a growth <laughs> mechanism. It's more for affinity building retention, strengthening, those kinds of things. It's, it's its of course super valuable, but most people don't discover you and your work, right? Just through the podcast. Um, maybe people in your audience will discover me by virtue of your show, but that's sort of a different, it's not, it's not a true discovery mechanism.
0: Yeah. It's kind of the by-affiliation. That's that's what you call it, kind of by by proxy, which is nice. I like that, which is what I really enjoy because that also opens the door to a deeper human connection between people, right? Which is what we're all kind of seeking. So when I hear this, I'm wondering, well, so now I'm active on social media and I'm just putting myself in the shoes of somebody who's building a business or building a brand or something. I'm active on Twitter. I'm active on LinkedIn, trying to post them both at the same time. Now I need to start a podcast for retention. Do I also need to start a newsletter? And do I have... Need to have a blog? Like, what else do I need to do? Because if the platforms, the social media platforms, were on only kind of like the discovery stuff, but don't do much about the retention, do I as a creator need to take care of the retention part myself? And how do I best do this?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I think creators should take care of the retention <laughs> part themselves, right? But I mean, I think it's it's doing it in a way that is most interesting or most sustainable for yourself, right? Like, not everyone, not everyone should start a podcast. Not everyone should start a newsletter, right? But I think it's it's whatever medium or platform that you feel is most engaging for you and your work um, and is something that is easily repeatable for you, right? So for some people, you know, that might be a newsletter. It might be video. Well, I doubt it's video. Video is really hard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But if someone is good at it, right, then by all means, you should use that, right? Um, but Yeah.
0: Yeah, one, and you you shouldn't just like chase uh, a different medium just to be different, right? You you have this this phrase that you use a lot: be refreshing, don't be different. I have a feeling that that might come in here as well. Like if if your audience is in a certain kind of area and is certain, using certain medium, they're all on YouTube or they're all on Twitter. Well, you probably want to be there as well, but you wanna you wanna show up in a way that is genuinely you. And, yeah. and that that's um, that's something I find with you, and that's uh, something that I find a lot in your writing that you you're very focused on looking at what do they want, but also what can I give, and where's the overlap between these two?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and to expound on the be refreshing, not different, um, that is a Jay Akunzo-ism. So Jay Akunzo is a showrunner, um, content creator, um, public speaker, and author. But I, I like that he talks about being refreshing and not different because. When you think about being refreshing, it's who can you be refreshing to? Yeah. Refreshing to whom? Yes. And it's thinking about the audience. When you're thinking about how to be different, you're thinking about how can I be different from who? Like from the competition. And so using the refreshing kind of framework is you're thinking about what your target audience actually wants. Whereas if you're thinking about just how to be different, you're only thinking about the competition. Yes. Which is... Is not something you should be doing. I mean, maybe you should know to some degree about the competition, right? But ultimately they're not what matters, right? It's not really your competition who's listening to you. It's the audience that you're trying to go after.
0: Yeah, it's I think it's just in, in terms of even visualizing it, if you define yourself by who you're not, well, then you visualize very strongly who that is, right? Like you'll only look at the the people that are the way you don't want it to be, but that does not imply you know at all what you actually want to be like. I like this. I think generally it's a good idea to stand for something, not against something, right? But uh, don't want to make this too political today. It just feels like that that uh, as an approach to being a creator tends to be a pretty good idea. Well, how do how do you find this out? How did you find this out? Because at some point you decided to start publishing online, and that was quite a while ago, and it has led to pretty significant consequences for you, right? You found an amazing job. You have started a, a course that is well beloved and impactful, but Let's go back to that point in time when you started to write online. Did you know who you were writing for? Or how did you define yourself in that moment?
1: Yeah. um, So when I first started out with creating content and sort of the audience building stuff, uh, I was writing for other marketers who might hire um, the services of my agency or the agency that I worked for. So I was going after marketers, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, um, th- that sort of audience. And that was the first kind of part of it. I was like, great, I'm going to create content for these people. And that gave me like a goal to work towards. But along the way, um, as I was doing this, my, my target audience sort of evolved because then I just started thinking about like, well, really, who is this for, right? Because I, I think after I had been doing that for a little while, I was starting to get more like inbound opportunities for other jobs and stuff. And that was really exciting. And then, I started thinking less about the day-to-day of, like, how can I do my job and more about, like, how can I use this to further my career? Like, um, what, what what is my personal goal with this? So then I started thinking about, like, well, I want to use this as opportunity to not ever have to do a traditional job hunt again. And so then my target audience kind of shifted, like, still towards marketers. But then I started thinking about, like, the marketers who I would want to work with one day, like who are some of the marketing people I would want to work with? Who are some of my marketing heroes? And where that helped me was, well, here, then I'll, I'll just say really quick, like I started kind of thinking about that. And then one of my marketing heroes, Rand Fishkin, followed me back, right? So. I mean, for those who don't know, I think I think every any any I think any indie hacker knows who Rand Fishkin is, right? He oh, they should <laughs> they should right. He was the first person to codify SEO, right? Like essentially, he taught all of us SEO. He was the first person to like go out and learn it <laughs> in like the early aughts, and he found a way to distill it into advice for people and taught the world SEO he also invented domain authority. I don't think a lot of people today know that, but domain authority, the way that we which the way in which we you know categorize the authority of a website that he invented that. So anyway, I'm saying that to set the stage for when he followed me back, exactly why I was like, "Oh my gosh, like this is a huge deal." <laughs> and now, certainly, I was self conscious, right? When one of your heroes follows you back, like I think well, for a lot of people, maybe the ref- the reflexive, the instinct is, "Oh my gosh, like I can't tweet it ever again. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, better just quit now while I'm on top, right?" <laughs> uh, so I definitely did that. Like I did close the app, and I was like, I, "I'm not tweeting for a couple of days." But it helped me think. It helped me think more clearly about well, okay, why would Rand Fishkin follow me back, right? He, this is the person who is like, he laid the groundwork for content marketing as we know it today. So he didn't, fo- he didn't follow me to learn marketing, right? He wasn't like, what is marketing? I'm going to follow this person, Amanda. Um, he followed me to learn my perspective. Like, what is it that I can bring to the table in terms of new marketing tactics that maybe he hasn't heard of? Or things that I'm finding effective, or maybe even like my hobbies. Like, what is maybe he's curious what I think about food or like how to cook certain things, right? All those things that make me me. And so once I kind of got to that mindset, I became less self conscious in that. Then I was like, oh, he, I, I don't need to be the expert. Like I don't, I don't know everything, and nor would he expect me to, nor would, I, nor would anyone expect me to. And then I really felt like I was having a lot more fun with the content I was creating and thinking about it on an elevated level, right? Like, how can I make this really high quality? Like, what's my unique perspective? What is the unique um, experience that I have with cooking this dish that maybe someone else hasn't done before? Like those things that make me me. And so I think um, I talk about this because I think that's a really good way for any sort of creator to think about the types of content they're creating, right? Because it's a way to think about how you do it for yourself Yes. in a way that helps you put your best foot forward.
0: Yeah, when you call it personal brand, it's not just about the brand, it's very much also about the personal, right? So, but what is the unique thing that is then the brand? Right? That's, that's such an important part and people often suppress it. I think a, a lot of founders and a lot of people who've done it for a while they still suppress parts of their personality because they think they are too quirky, too spiky, too opinionated, right? Too experienced in a, in a field that doesn't matter. But honestly, if you, if you really want to build this authority in public or just any authority <laughs> anywhere, you just have to lead with everything you have, right? You have to put your value on the table. I, I love the story about Rand. I love your reaction to it. That's such a, you know, like uh, our our imposter syndrome that's just like constantly in the background of our minds just came out swinging at that point. And she's like, nope, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. I had this cu- couple times as well in the past, but I also had the opposite of this where people followed me and it was like, oh, wow. it's Now I can actually interact with these people that are my heroes. And I, I chatted with them and it turns out they are just like me seeking to learn from each other. I, I really enjoy this. So is, is that the mindset that you have when you now publish? Not necessarily to to instruct, but to, to open up learning for people? And I yourself?
1: think so. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a combination of things. Like sometimes I'll put on kind of different hats and I think about like, maybe I'll write something for the version of me like eight years ago mm-hmm. who was just entering their first... I think it was eight years ago. I just kind of said that number. <laughs> <But> like <laughs> Maybe eight years ago or so when I first became a people manager. Like, maybe I'll write this thing for that person or that version of me. Um, so I do think about that sometimes, too. Yeah. But wait, yeah. I'm curious about you. Like, Who was somebody who followed you back that you were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this person like knows who I am or they know I exist?
0: It was funny. I think it started with like Patrick Campbell, like the founder of ProfitWell, and who recently sold it to Paddle for two hundred million dollars, which was bizarre. And then just chatting with him in the DMs, that, and and set, setting up even the interview on this podcast, something that I never thought I'd be able to. I get people that are in the what is it nine figure a, like acquisition field, and just. Ch- casually chatting about this that is that is something that i i find like mind-blowing or, or courtland Cortland allen and channing allen of the indie hackers community a community that started my journey right that was su- such an integral part of why i am where i am and a, a bootstrapper an indie hacker just them actually just showing up following and, and wanting to learn blows my mind every single day that that is the case. That I now get to hang out with them and bounce ideas back and forth. All these wonderful people is just yeah. That blows my mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's super cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and I feel the the more I do it, the more it happens. That's also something that just consistency wise for for somebody building this brand, which I think I'm doing as well around building in public by building in public. I guess the more you build this network. The more opportunities just kind of fall into place. Have you noticed the same in in your experience?
1: Oh, absolutely. Right. You're just opening up more doors to serendipity for yourself.
0: Yeah. And that's that's why
1: it's so so important, right? It's so important to do that. Like, that's that's why I think that's the real reason why anybody, everybody should think about their personal brand. I'm putting that in air quotes because I know people don't always like that phrasing but it really is the best way to find serendipitous opportunities for yourself or to let those serendipitous opportunities find you.
0: Yeah. Well, which is why this whole discovery content stuff that we talked about earlier is so important, right? To open up the potential for connection. I I do want to look at it like from a, I wouldn't call it skeptical, but realistic lens though, because if we don't, own the means of communication, which I think is just a new age rephrasing of the means of production, but I don't want to, don't want to go too deep into this, but the, the means of communicating with a person, because if you're on a platform like Twitter or whatever, it's kind of. We're beholden to Twitter, right? They can turn off the platform for us whenever they want. And then we lose all the connections we can potentially have. How can we establish like a, a more controlled environment there? Like, how can we establish actual meaningful connections still virtually? Because we're all just sitting in our basements or in our living rooms doing our things at this point, right? Post pandemic, maybe, but we've got used to this. What's, what's an avenue that we can take? to establish like stronger connections than what social media is currently offering us? What do you think?
1: Yeah, that that's, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I want to say like, I mean, social media today is just so different than it was a couple years ago. Right. Like it just is, I mean, with the volatility over at Twitter, I think a lot of people, pretty much everybody, right. <laughs> and on Twitter or slash X is thinking about like uh what's the next platform that everybody's getting on like should i go there first like you know the way that like a bunch of us tried to go on mastodon or blue sky now i now <laughs> right. threads i think is the place like everyone's like trying to hedge right so i do think there is something to be said for like you know i'll say like three years ago, I would have said like, yeah, pick one social media platform, get really good at it, and then scale to the next one. I kind of still would say that maybe in broad strokes, but maybe today, if I were giving that advice, like right now, totally net new, I would say pick two social networks. And that's so hard to do because to show up on a social network, you have to look at it as a community and not just as, you know, you with a megaphone blasting out like your content, right? You have to look at it as like, where is the existing community that my target audience is in, but not looking at them as a target audience, looking at them as an existing community and figuring out your role in that community, creating content for it and kind of, kind of, you know, building relationships at scale. Um, I would say find two places for that. And then meanwhile, build (laughs) your like owned platform, which would be like probably your email list, maybe it would be like your show right like the thing that you own that isn't beholden to algorithms that you can essentially control
0: yeah two platforms that that sounds like already a lot of more work than just one platform <laughs> you know it's it it feels like uh, particularly for founders for people who are busy building things not just hanging out on twitter like i do all day but actually you know building software that's stuff that I do. But you know, I mostly spend time writing and thinking and reading. So it's easy for me to be on Twitter and to be on LinkedIn. But if if you barely have time, right, that feels like a lot of work. Um, Which is why some people just take one thing and post it to both platforms at the same time. What is your perspective on this? Because as you just explained, these are different communities and different communities speak a different language. They have different expectations. Does it still make sense to just kind of broadcast the same message into multiple different platforms and expect them to work in both?
1: I think it can, but it depends on the message. Like, I think if it's a, like, if it's a big idea, like, like a thesis, like something that you've worked really hard on, like a meaningful blog post, then that should be something that can essentially be replicated across multiple networks. Because after all, if you've spent all that time and energy working on this, like, you know, 2000 word blog post then it should kind of stand the test of a couple of different platforms. But if you're thinking about like, if you had like a pithy tweet, right? That was like a one-liner, like one-line zinger, that's probably not gonna do well on LinkedIn. like Probably not, right? So maybe what I would think about is understand each network, like why people go to each network, what they look for when they do, or rather, What does your community do on each of these networks? And then how does your content kind of fit in with that? Right. So like, I don't know what the indie hacker audience does on LinkedIn. Are they, I mean, I assume they're on LinkedIn in the way that everybody's on LinkedIn. Right. But are they really there? It's like, is it their water cooler? Probably not. Right. Like that's where I might think that, well, I mean, I, I see LinkedIn as more like this is where corporate people are. Yeah. And that's yeah, kind that's, of what I
0: use that for. I, I guess that's that's also my let's call it more like <laughs> my my experience over the last decade or so, but doesn't necessarily mean that it's still the case, right? I, I wish there was an audience research tool that could help me discover these kind of things. It's kind of what SparkToro does. That's that's the yeah. whole point, right? Is to figure yeah. this out. I, I was wondering like how much do you yourself use audience research tools like SparkToro in your own like personal yeah, so, creator journey?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, so Spectoro, you know, at the time of this recording, we are making a lot of changes with the tool. And I think it's going to be, we're going to relaunch it, I think at the end of this year, um, at the end of 2023. And I think it's going to be a really exciting time for creators, bootstrap teams, uh, people on small budgets to, to use, to leverage the tool, because whereas before we were more Twitter centric in that. We use Twitter as sort of the connector network to verify other identities or behaviors because Twitter used to have the most robust API offering. They no longer do. So we're moving more towards a domain centric. So like what people are doing based on the websites they go to. So different way of pulling data, but we're able to, we're going to be able to show you um newer data points, like for instance, something that I think will be really exciting for anybody who creates content or distributes anything is you can search for your audience and you can search for how popular a given social network is among this audience relative to like, the average person. So like, for instance, like I recently ran a SparkToro search like of the SparkToro community. Like what does what does the SparkToro community do? Um, I learned that, they tend to frequent Quora more than other, more than the average person.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: That, that was something I didn't know. Yeah, like it's it's not shocking to me, but I didn't know that. Right. I also learned that like they are on LinkedIn more than the average person. Not too surprising. And then um, I forgot there was one network where they were that was like less influential. I think it was Instagram. Like people who like the Spoktoro audience is less engaged on Instagram than the average person. So this will give you a sense of like where to put your efforts in terms of the actual like content creation or distribution.
0: That's a that's a wonderful feature. And I would love to know more about indie hackers in that regard, right? Bootstrappers, creators, because it feels like every single sub audience that you might find even within has a different approach to this like that there are people like UX designers that are indie hackers too they're probably also more focused on visual media like uh, Instagram would be than others so that would be very interesting do I see you actively searching (laughs) is that what I see right now (laughs) I was like wait I'm
1: going to try to see like like, is there can I search for the indie hacker audience right
0: now (laughs) I would love to know. that would be really interesting
1: okay so like The indie hacker audience, um, some of the – yeah. So the people who have the word like indie hacker in their bio, like in their social media profile, they also tend to frequent uh, Kotaku.com, GamePressure.com, Nintendolife.com. That's funny. That's There's kind of a lot
0: of gamers among those yeah. indie people that's hilarious <laughs> that that is yeah. that is interesting to know and and also really just also as an indicator for the kind of content and the kind of language to use when communicating with people I think that's that's uh, just goes right back into how do we talk to the people that we want to be involved with the people we want to serve like if we can talk a metaphor that they understand just. Taking from the Kotaku world, I guess uh, a lot of gaming and a lot of you know nerd life uh, <laughs> metaphors. You, you could use that, right? I've 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 seen a lot of good newsletters that actively lean into the, the just the language, the vernacular of people that they try to serve. Absolutely,
1: so, yeah. And I think I think get, tapping into their vernacular is kind of the best way to really establish credibility with a mm-hmm. given audience, right? Because if yeah. you're not if not if you're not using the shared terminology. Right, they're going to be like you don't speak my language. You don't know my world.
0: I sometimes when I think about this, my developer mind immediately kicks in and I think like there's probably somebody who's going to try to automate all of this with like an OpenAI ChatGPT prompt that says you are a gamer. Rephrase all of this 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 tweet into something that a gamer would relate to. And it's probably simple and every single day that we get to get new releases from open AI. It gets faster. It gets more comprehensive. It gets easier to use. How do you personally feel? As somebody who's been working in this field for a while, you have a lot of experience. You've also managed people. Do, do you do you think you'll eventually manage AI agents to do the work that you now kind of do with other humans?
1: I, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. That's something I really hadn't thought about. Um, maybe, right? Like I... I I think there's still some. I think there's fun opportunity in like building your own like custom large language models, like the the AI element, right? Like it'd be cool to build your own chatbot that's trained on all of your past episodes, right? Yeah,
0: that's that's something I've been thinking about a lot, and a lot, and several people have reached out to me asking me if I would like this, and I told them yes, build it. And they are right; there are people building this kind of stuff, and with every new day. As, as of this recording, I think yesterday, OpenAI announced like their custom GPT thing, which means like you can very easily now build custom chat GPT versions trained on whatever you want them and you can fine tune them on GPT itself, right? You don't have to use any external tools for this. This will heavily impact how firms or companies just internally use this tool for whatever. I can barely imagine what it might be. We've seen what it does for marketing copy, right? We've seen how efficient or inefficient depending on uh, how well you are uh, prepared to write good prompts it can be i I just want to get like a a sentiment from you about um, is there a way to authentically represent yourself as a marketer as a creator as somebody who has something to offer and use these tools that are effectively not you in the process
1: Hmm. i would think about it like how can you use these tools to do the work that you yourself don't need to do? Like the, the, the things that like when you're searching for certain types of information, does it need to be you who does it or does it need, or is it just a job that needs to get done? If it's a job that needs to get done, maybe that can be, you know, essentially outsourced to AI. Um, But I think it's the custom stuff. Like, how you say it in your tone? I mean, I think AI is getting better, right, at like writing in the style of certain people, like that, and, and it will continue to get better. But I think if you're if you really want to challenge yourself, right, to to bring forth unique ideas or unique styles, then that's going to be something that AI shouldn't be able to do, right? Because if it's if it's very nature or inherently, it is derivative. Can it really provide something original? You know?
0: Yeah. So, so you just have to do a lot of zigzagging to kind of stay ahead of what the AI may assume you might want to do. Because right now it's derivative, but I, I I assume that there will be smart people to build AI tools that kind of extrapolate, like with how you communicate, who you communicate with, where your next thought is going to be coming from, which is eerie to think about that these tools might kind of be pre like Minority Report style about what we're going to be saying in the future and kind of pre-assume it and I, I don't even want to dive too deep it's, it's going to be a very pessimistic version of how we communicate with each other but I was I was wondering like how actively you use these tools right now in your own process because I use them for ideation a lot I just like throw ideas back and forth and give me five more potential ways of looking at this and then I think about it and then I dictate something into you know a, a tool that gives me a summary from which I write my draft. It's a it's part of my ideation process, but I don't use it for the final pro- writing process. How is that for you?
1: Yeah, I mean similar. Like I use it for ideation for like rough drafts. So I might use it to like to brainstorm some headlines, maybe look at um, awkward sentence phrasing, right? Other things that I, I like to use like chatbots like GP like like um, Chat GPT for is like recipes, right? Like I'll, or meal planning, right? Yes. So I'll, I, might, I might type in like, I have like lettuce, cilantro, and like ground pork in my fridge. What should I make? Right, so I've been using it for that, which I think is a lot of fun.
0: Has it ever um, backfired? Have you ever gotten a really, really bad recipe from it that did not make it?
1: Well, you know, here's the thing, actually. I don't actually use the recipes to a T because... That's, that's where, like, the snob in me is like, oh, it is, this is going to be right. But I use it as, like, the, the, the compass to be like, oh, okay. Well, with lettuce, cilantro, and ground pork, I can make larb. And then I'll think about, like, how I would make it. I might, I might search on Google for a couple of food blogs that I really like and look at their recipes. So I, I think because, like, sometimes I'll look at a recipe in chat GPT and I'll be like, mm, this, this isn't going to be very good. I just
0: know it. Yeah, because it has no taste, right? Quite literally and metaphorically. (laughs) Like it's, it it is incapable of understanding the results of its own, of its own creation. I like this. You synthesize the AI created stuff and hopefully human created recipes from other places into something that you kind of prejudge the outcome of. I think this is important to understand. Like our capacity to prejudge outcomes without having to take the actual steps along the way, which is how these uh, machine learning models or AI models work, right? They kind of have to write to think. (laughs) I do too, but that's just my own flaw in writing. That is something that is still uniquely human and your capacity to synthesize it at the end.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I think, yeah, I think I would add to that too. Like, would I be doing this or would I be using Chat GPT in the same exact way for meal planning. If I didn't have any expertise in food, I might not. Right, I, I might. I mean, I might still use it, but like, I have the foundational knowledge of like how to cook. Right, I went to culinary school. I have quite a bit of experience working in test kitchens, so I kind of know. I know how to cook, right? Um, so that gives me some confidence, right, in, in sussing out recipes. Just by reading, like just just by skimming the ingredient list and looking at the preparation method, I might look at something and go, "Oh, they didn't start by you know browning the meat, right? Like you want to for cooking like maybe a nice stew. Usually, you'd want to brown or sear the meat on the outsides, get some nice caramelization of that outside crust, and then you would finish cooking a recipe. But if I saw a stew recipe through Chat GPT that just said like throw the meat in a pot pour over like chicken broth and then this, this, and this, and then bring it to a boil. I would be like, ew, that's not how I would make that, right? And I I know this is a really like wonky or like really specific example, but I'm highlighting this to show like, because I know those things, I know to look for them, right? Where if I didn't really know how to cook, I don't know that I would be just trusting ChatGPT blindly. I wouldn't be like, oh, well, ChatGPT told me to make the stew like this. So I'm just going to do it that way. Um, it's yeah.
0: funny that you, that you mentioned like browning the meat in this case, because you, you, could, you could ask ChatGPT about the Maillard reac- reaction and it would tell you exactly how that happens, why it happens, why it releases flavor, all of that. But it would not think, because it doesn't, to actually include it in this recipe to make it better, right? That's, that's kind of, it, it has its silos of knowledge because that's kind of what it was trained on, but it cannot synthesize. That That is an important f- um, consequence to understand, which also means that we sti- still need to learn. Like Absolutely. humans will still <laughs> need to learn the, the yeah. foundational.
1: Yeah. Like chat won't know, like, it won't know that you care about the My- mylar reaction, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So
1: it, went, it, it wouldn't know to surface a recipe that includes that technique. It'll just know, well, you want to make this thing based on these ingredients. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, unless you've written publicly about it and it had, has ingested this and it knows that you are talking to it, which is also a pretty weird perspective to, to have about a future, but it is a likely one because now the, the tools have the capacity to do real-time lookups. And if they can look on Twitter, what you've written about today or yesterday, they might, need, they might understand what your intention is, what you want, and give you replies to that. Kind of makes me wonder, um, as we are putting more and more information out there, Right for these machines to ingest, do do you think that makes us, or maybe let me rephrase this, do you think this makes our personal brand stronger because we now have information that other people might get from ChatGPT and hopefully therefore find us and what we have to offer? Or does it weaken us because now ChatGPT can do our work for us and other people don't get to see the stuff that is behind that kind of work?
1: Hmm. I think it makes it harder for me- mediocre content to stand out, right? Like it makes it just it raises the bar essentially.
0: Yeah. I think yeah yeah that, I, th- I think that's that's it. Like you just have to out qualitatively, right? So you have to have higher quality in what you offer that is more personal to you. And more relatable, therefore, to others. Um, that, that, which kind of brings us together to, uh, back to the point where you said you, you don't, you, you have to kind of find your people and create for them, not create for everybody else, right? You, you don't, I, I think that's something that I heard you say as well. You don't have to be the best at something. You just have to be somebody's favorite. And I, I really like that phrase as well, because that just shows you, you have to, you have to have an audience that selects into you and you, everybody else can't easily select out of wanting to be like related to you and it's still gonna be perfectly fine for a creator like you
1: yeah right? absolutely and like you're never gonna be the best at something right <laughs> so.
0: Which, which you, you just said that earlier with, with Rand when, when you said like, here is this person that is so much better than me at marketing following me. And he's not following you for your marketing teachings. He's following you because you're awesome, right? And that awesomeness is what he's interested in learning from somebody on, on his level. That is really wonderful. Um, do you expect to, um, keep just evolutionizing your audience in the future, like keep building more of, of an audience in the building in public realm or in the the audience building realm. Where do you see yourself going? Because you have this wonderful course where you teach marketing and yet that's that's a cohort course. Um how, how do you see this evolving? I I I want to know this because I love people that start something and it grows over time into something much bigger, much, much better. So where do you see your own personal audience going?
1: You know, I, I don't know right now. So I'm sort of at this crossroads in that, um, well, this is actually the first podcast that I've joined since coming back from parental leave. So I have like, you know, a bigger family now. Um, I have more to consider in terms of like how I spend my time or, you know, what I want to spend my energy on now that I have a bigger family. (laughs) So there's that, um, and, I, and I've created a couple things that I think have different paths or different sort of end games that I could consider. Um, when I first started my content marketing course, my content marketing course is called Content Marketing 201. And I've very purposefully positioned that as like an intermediate content marketing course, right? It's not like if you're an expert, you probably wouldn't take my course. I think an expert content marketer is probably um, – diving super deep into, um, a given niche or like into a given way of doing something. Like I think a really advanced content marketer might be thinking about, um, launching a podcast. And so they want to know how to, how to create the best podcast, uh, types of editing tools to consider, which agencies to hire, like things like that. It's like a really specific, um, I think an intermediate content marketer can still be kind of broadly or the curriculum for that is still, I think, more broadly applicable, where it's not just people who are thinking about a blog, right? They might be thinking about a couple of different content channels. So I focused my, my course on that. But there was a time, and I still, I still might do this, um, there was a time where I was thinking about, like, how can I make the 201 school, right? Like, because I've thought about, you know, having like a PR 201 course, where it's sort of like that intermediate level. Um, PR course that goes beyond what is a press release. It's not so much what is a press release. Maybe it's more how to write an effective press release and develop a media strategy for, for the news. like Things like that, that a beginner wouldn't know, but an intermediate person would have to learn. Um, so that's one thing I'm thinking about. Other things I'm thinking about are just really um, – Trying to double down on the B two B SaaS world, right in SparkToro world, like, and this is the thing I will be doing, right? Like, how do I grow this company? Um, how do we improve the tool and like become one of the basic B two B SaaS companies? Like, that's the thing I think about.
0: That's very interesting. I I'm kind of want to talk about both because that that b- both are very distinct and super interesting. Like future projections. I like the idea of the. 201 Academy, like <laughs> the idea of like, this is a place where everybody who's in between the initial and the expert stages of a, of a career can find something. Because I have this strong feeling that particularly at this intermediate stage, you have so much to learn from just knowledge transfer from other fields, right? So having a place where all of these things, like the marketing 201, the PR 201, and I don't know, the sales 201, whatever that might be, Find their place. That is a great idea. Would you want to run it all by yourself, or would you want to open it up to other lecturers? Is that something on your mind?
1: I don't know. I mean, like, I guess it would depend on the scale at which I do it, because there there are areas of marketing that I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable being like the originator of here's how to do this. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't be comfortable creating my own like um, advertising. Um, or like paid social course, like by myself. So I think that's where I would want to lean on lean on other experts or people who have um, more of that tactical knowledge, and then seeing how we can partner together.
0: Yeah, I think Daniel Vassalo is doing this really well with the small bets community. Like he he has people of all kinds of expertise come in almost regularly on a yearly basis and just teach like an hour and a half of their field. And that like the, the community is like you pay once access forever. Kind of, kind of like a university, I guess, and, and just way cheaper than that. And you, you get to experience all these different fields from people that are experts, but they're bringing it back to the level of a beginner in this case, right? I wonder if that would be an interesting model for you. I don't necessarily think we need to dive too specifically into the business model there, although that's interesting, right? How you, how can you leverage your personal brand into a monetizable enterprise? I think that is generally an interesting field. But I also want to dive into the 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 SaaS world a bit, because lots of listeners here are building their own SaaS. So I kind of want to kind of harken back, and this might be the last topic of this conversation, to to marketing as something that indie hackers need to do. There's obviously a field where lots of technical people don't really enjoy it. Uh, there's there's memes all over the place about marketing being the thing that people don't like. But it's something that we need to do to put attention that shine the light of attention on our products and our businesses. You talked a lot recently or over the last couple months about the idea of a fractional marketing director. Right? The idea of having well, maybe you can explain this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I I I wrote this blog post about fractional marketing directors because I feel like I have been seeing a lot of fractional chief marketing officers. Like I've been seeing the job like the job requisition, um, people entering that role. And I've seen people in that fractional CMO role and have kind of seen the work that they do or like have a sort of peek into the type of work that they do and thought like, oh, that's not what a CMO does. Like, it's interesting that that's their title, but like that's not, but that's pretty like tactical work that they're doing. Like they're they're running an SEO function as like a sort of consultant. That's not what a CMO would do. So I've kind of been like noticing some of these patterns and have thought like, maybe it's not that people, well, I don't think everybody needs a fractional CMO or that some of the companies who are hiring for this role, I think what they actually want is a fractional marketing director and the differentiation there being, and I know maybe somebody listening would be like, oh, titles don't matter, but they do matter. Right, because your CMO is the person who sets the overall strategic vision for like the remainder of the year, right? They have like the full roadmap. They are thinking about how all the dots connect across different departments, revenue streams, whatever, right? They're thinking about how brand and performance intersect, like all of these things that are very strategic. And it's not that other marketers on a team think about those things. It's that they're not always it, or they're not responsible for it in the same way that a CMO is. Now, where I think a fractional marketing director comes in is it's somebody who has domain expertise or job function expertise, while also being enough of a generalist to be effective in other parts of marketing, right? So a marketing director might be somebody who has really good um, SEO experience, right? That's kind of their thing. They also know a little bit of social media, Maybe they know a little bit of performance marketing and you hire them mainly for the SEO purposes and also to make some headway in the rest of your marketing. Like that is what I think most companies actually need. They need somebody to own a given marketing function and to get them those tactical results. Um, Not somebody necessarily who's going to like set the vision and then spend time in a lot of meetings and running strategy, right? I think a lot of times like these companies who are hiring who are hiring for these part time functions, they need somebody to roll up their sleeves and like just create that social media content, like just get it done, um, while also setting that strategy for organic social media, right? Like somebody who can do that and has a little bit of expertise in other things, but can make really good headway on the tactical stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: I really like this idea, particularly for, for indie hackers or for small software businesses who don't have like a massive budget anyway to hire these kind of C level positions, right? And you're right. Titles really matter. They come with a price tag. They come with an experience assumption and all these expectations. So that the fractional part kind of appeals to me also as somebody who is not a native marketer to know that there are people out there. Where do I find these people? That's maybe an interesting question. Like where would, would I, as somebody who has a technical background and maybe a, a vision entrepreneurial background, but not a, much of a marketing background, where would I go to find a fractional director, marketing director? Um,
1: you, might, you might find someone on LinkedIn, right? So the mm-hmm. person I'm thinking about would be somebody who's like a senior manager or a director at a company where they have like maybe five to seven years of experience running their own function mm-hmm. or their own domain and they might have a little bit of tangential experience and other stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a way to, like, look on LinkedIn at different people who have, like, maybe who are product marketers first, right? Um, I think that's kind of where I would start. Um, Yeah.
0: That sounds reasonable. I think, like, also, (laughs) I was just thinking of your example, your experience. You were hired from the community in which you were already active. Right. That's that's something that that I would think is also a place where you can go. Like you've literally found your job because your boss followed you and then, you know, turned into a job. So I, I guess that's that's also a an avenue to to find people that are in the same industry as you, but not necessarily have the exact same background, but have a marketing background. Would you recommend that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think being like active in that community that you want to serve, it's a great way to do it. Um I think also, and this is kind of a really specific example, but (laughs) I think just making it as easy as possible for people to stumble upon you and your expertise. And so by that, I mean like even just something as basic as making sure your social media bios are up to date. Yeah. Right? Like it's even just that. Like this is like super nerdy, but something that I've done is I've exported my twitter audience like everybody who follows me on twitter i actually have an excel spreadsheet of all the, the handles names and the, people's bios and anytime somebody asks me like hey do you know of a good email marketer i can hire i actually pull up my spreadsheet oh, wow. and i hit Control f for email marketing
0: that's awesome
1: to see like do does anyone who follow me and like and like I think I have like 130,000 followers. Yes, like you do. and the people who follow me who have that title, it's not like a thousand people. Like it's like 50. And that's not very many, he right? No, like sure that, is not. It's not. <laughs> like it's enough that you can just hit like next 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 and like skim each bio and that's what I look at. And then if I find a compelling uh, you know, and it doesn't have to be like some insane bio that's like drove, you know, 10-figure revenue. Like, I don't look for that. I just, I just, I look for something honest and clear. And then I'll look up their profile and I skim their content and I'm like, oh, they seem cool. And then I'll tell the person who's asking me, like, yeah, reach out to this person. Um, they seem to have really good experience in email marketing. I would probably ask them.
0: So, that is yeah. such a wonderful first off, it's really nice that you do this because it just shows how much you actually like the people you hang out with on Twitter, which yeah. is great. Right. But also what what a what a crazy thing. Like if if you if you didn't know that, right? That people actively look into your bio to recommend you to other people. And and you just don't put it in because you think nobody's gonna look at this anyway. And here would be that opportunity, right? That's what building in public is. You leave traces of your ambition so that other people can actually find it and recommend you to the places where you need to be. Yeah. This is su- such a, such an opportunity surface thing where you just yeah. need to put it out there and somebody will grab you because they totally. need you.
1: That's totally. That's so cool. And like, I don't, and like, maybe as someone listening is thinking, this is weirdly specific. So I should include this in my bio in case yeah. somebody hits control F on my stuff. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe one way to look at it though is (laughs) as you are like building your online presence, anybody who considers following you is going to look at your bio like anybody. Right. So you might as well have something that's clear, easy to understand. That's true. Right. (laughs) Like truth over trying to engineer something impressive. Um, And then just like, make it easy for people to find you. Like you can do it on LinkedIn too, like so that anyone searching for email marketing, whatever on LinkedIn might find you by way of your headline. Um, And then by extension, having a personal site that's linked to on your social media profiles where people can go to like amandanet.com and go, oh, that's what this person is. Here's who they are. Here's what they do. Okay, like now I get it. Yeah, I don't, and I, this might sound obvious, but a lot of people, not a lot of people do this.
0: <laughs> it's it's obvious because once you understand it, it's clear that if you didn't do it, you would just leave something on the table. <laughs> but to, to get to the point, to put in the effort to set up a website, to put in the effort to even keep your things updated, that some, some people just don't immediately, it's kind of a thing where you look for immediate results. But these things take time. They are kind of opportunities that happen when they happen because they are externalized, right? You look for them. It's not that they push, like these people push their job search out there. You know that somebody needs to find an expert and then you look so i think it's a a wonderful thing to to keep these things updated and to understand the value that they potentially could have that is really strong and personal website 100 right right there with you you have full control you can if you if you need to start a newsletter you can just collect people's email to put them on a list in case you want to reach out to them all of this is is possible on your personal site it's not possible anywhere else
1: totally yeah yeah, and like I have my personal site where I have um like my Substack sign up mm-hmm. embedded. Yes. Right? Like I could always move away from Substack if I wanted to. Yeah. But the the email capture or the mechanism is there.
0: Yeah.
1: I can change it if I want to. Um
0: Yeah, but and can still keep your email list from Substack and just import it into the next email service provider that you use, right? That's the, that's the kind of control that you have over a website that you will never have on Twitter. Like even if you, if you export your Twitter list like you're doing, all you have is a list of names and bios, which is great and apparently very useful. But like if if you have to start a new account, that means nothing to you, right, or nothing to them. Like you're not going to get the, those connections reestablished. so owning the means of communication is kind of what I meant with this. Having the list of emails that is a very important thing. still, for discovery, Twitter and LinkedIn are important places. so if people want to find you and your journey, where do you want them to go?
1: Oh man, today, where should they go? Maybe just LinkedIn. That's where all of us B2B nerds are. <laughs> I'm still on Twitter or X and I'm on threads, but LinkedIn's probably the most reliable place for me right now.
0: Yeah, is is that Amanda Nat as well? Just like your yeah. website? All right. Well, I guess you're that on all platforms, right? You have that, that handle wherever you go. I, I would certainly recommend people who are listening and watching this uh, to follow you on all these platforms because you never know, right? The opportunities may present themselves. Thank you so much, Amanda. That was a wonderful, wonderful look, view into your life and into your expertise. Thanks so much for sharing everything you shared with me today.
1: Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me, Arvid. This was so much fun.
0: It was really nice to chat. Thank you. And that's it for today. I will now briefly thank my sponsor, Acquire.com. Imagine this, you're a founder who's built a really solid SaaS product, you acquired all those customers, and everything is generating really consistent monthly recurring revenue. That's the dream of every SaaS founder, right? Problem is, you're not growing for whatever reason. Maybe it's lack of skill or lack of focus or lack of interest, you don't know. You just feel stuck in your business with your business. What should you do? Well, the story that I would like to hear is that you buckled down, you reignited the fire and you started working on the business, not just in the business. And all those things you did, like audience building and marketing and sales and outreach, they really helped you to go down this road, six months down the road, making all that money. You tripled your revenue and you have this hyper successful business. That is the dream. The reality, unfortunately, is not as simple as this. And the situation that you might find yourself in is looking different for every single founder who's facing this crossroad. This problem is common, but it looks different every time. But what doesn't look different every time is the story that here just ends up being one of inaction and stagnation because the business becomes less and less valuable over time and then eventually completely worthless if you don't do anything. So if you find yourself here, Already at this point, or you think your story is likely headed down a similar road, I would consider a third option, and that is selling your business on Acquire.com. Because you capitalizing on the value of your time today is a pretty smart move. It's certainly better than not doing anything. And Acquire.com is free to list. They've helped hundreds of founders already. Just go check it out at Arvid. It's me, and see for yourself if this is the right option for you, your business, at this time. You might just want to wait a bit and see, if it works out half a year from now or a year from now, just check it out. It's always good to be in the know. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder today. I really appreciate that. You can find me on Twitter at avidkal, A I V A D K A H L, And you find my books and my Twitter course there too. If you want to support me and this show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, whatever that might be. Do let me know. It would be interesting to see. And leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder it really makes a big difference if you show up there because then this podcast shows up in other people's feeds and that's, I think, where we all would like it to be, just helping other people learn and see and understand new things. Any of this will help the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye-bye.